Well, hey, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to um, Jonah 4. While you're turning there, can I ask you a question? What's up with the front two rows today? Like, like did I not get the memo? Are, are like people starting to realize that I pick on the people that sit in the front two rows and now we've abandoned it across all four sections? Like, seriously, it may, do I smell? Like, I'm trying to figure out like, what's going on here, but um, I'm glad to have you guys worshiping with us this morning. We're going to be in Jonah chapter four. We're finishing up a series in Jonah that we've been in in the month of August. Four chapters, 44 verses. If you haven't been here, let me help you get caught up with a story that many of you would be familiar with. Jonah, in chapter 1, is told to go to preach. Very unusual. He's told to leave Israel, has a prophet to Israel, and he's told to go preach uh, to the Assyrians, to the city of Nineveh. And uh, he's not real fond of that assignment, so he runs the opposite direction. He heads towards Spain rather than going east towards what is modern-day Iraq. And... um, Through that chapter, in his rebellion, God continues to pursue him. Others get hurt. Innocent bystanders get put in the middle of a storm. But God is relentless in his pursuit of his disobedient prophet. And we find chapter 1 ends, Jonah finds himself in the belly of a fish. Chapter 2 is all about his prayer from the belly of the fish. He repents of his rebellion. He realizes that salvation is of the Lord. He actually preaches the gospel to himself. And at the end of chapter 2, he is spit out again with the command to go to Nineveh and preach. So in chapter 3, last week, In chapter 3, Jonah goes to the city that he originally ran from, from Nineveh, and he preaches this wonderfully compassionate message. He basically says, 40 days until you burn, and uh, God uses that message, and there is widespread repentance of the people of Nineveh. And uh, when I say repentance, it's really important that you understand what that means. It says that they turned from their wickedness, or they turned from their evil. Don't ever think that you're repenting just because you realize the things that you're doing are wrong. Don't ever think that you're repenting just because you feel guilt and shame over the decisions or the actions that you're doing. True repentance will lead to a change of course. It leads to a change of behavior. It it plays itself out in obedience. And so chapter 3 ends this way. It says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster which he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. So God shows mercy to the city of Nineveh, and if the story ended at the end of chapter 3, we could kind of just go, and they all lived happily ever after. It would be a great story, this uh, redeeming of Jonah. He goes, completes his mission. The people repent. It's a wonderful story, but the problem is we got chapter 4, and I would just say, I don't know what it is about chapter 4. Maybe it's because I've had three weeks to prepare. I... um, preached Jonah 1, and then I, in that message, I told many people that, hey, I'm headed to my favorite place in the world. I'm headed up to Alaska, and I'm going to do some fishing. So for the last two weeks, I was out of the pulpit as guys preached chapters 2 and chapter 3. So I've had three weeks to prepare, and I don't know what it is about Jonah 4. Maybe it's the fact that I went all the way to Alaska, and I was there for less than a day, and there was a COVID outbreak at the lodge that I was at. And uh, they sent us home without fishing. Maybe that's a part of it. Or maybe when I got back, I got to quarantine for four or five days. But I've had a whole bunch of time to think about Jonah 4. And uh, if you want to ask me about my fishing trip, it wasn't awesome. 
okay? Which, as we get into chapter 4, you're going to see this story, this narrative, take an interesting turn. And our big idea this morning is really just simply this. Whose page are you on? Whose page are you on would be the big idea this morning. And I'm just going to read through the chapter. I think this is one of the weirdest, most wonderful chapters in the entire Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, because you're going to see this story take a turn that maybe some of you aren't even familiar with because we focus on the first three chapters, but I believe that God has something for us in these few verses this morning. We're not here to hear a story from the Old Testament. We're here to find ourselves in the Old Testament stories, in the narratives, so that God can use these stories to speak to us individually. And my prayer would be, that you wouldn't be leaving here today knowing more about Jonah, you might know a little bit more about yourself. So I would say, we often say in the Old Testament narratives, find yourself in the story. Jonah 4, there's two characters. There's Jonah and there's God. Who do you think you are not? Okay, you're not God, okay? It should be really easy for you to find yourself in the story. We're Jonah. And if we're not careful, it's easy to make the same decisions and choose the same course of action that we're going to see Jonah choose in these few verses. So let's do this. Let's just read through the story together, and then we'll go back and pull some application from it if we could. So here's what it says in verse 1 of chapter 4. Remember, 310, God has relented from the disaster because Nineveh has repented. They've turned from their evil And then verse 1 of chapter 4 says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Those words, displeased Jonah exceedingly, literally translated, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. So, So you just need to understand, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he thought the people were exceedingly evil. And then he preached the message that God gave him to the people, and they turned from their evil. And they're turning from evil, and God forgiving them, showing them mercy. Now God believe, or now Jonah is saying, God, what you did, exceedingly evil. It goes on in verse 2, and it says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. How's our boy Jonah doing so good? Three verses in. Okay. I'm sensing that his attitude is beginning to sour. Maybe you're seeing the same thing. Verse 4. And the Lord said... Do you do well to be angry? We'll come back to that. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat in it, uh, and he sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Okay, in Job's mood with his current attitude, what is he hoping is going to happen to the city? Fire. Like, Lord, light these guys up like matchsticks. He's hoping that they're going to return to their evil and God's going to judge. And it says in verse 6, Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. There's that word exceedingly again. Before he he thought it was exceedingly evil. Now he's exceedingly glad because of the plant. Verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Verse 9, but Jonah said to God, second time this question's asked, do you do well to be angry? This time specifically about the plant. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And God says in verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's the end. The story ends, and God's like, well, what about the cows? Is nobody else thinking about the cows but me? I tell you, it's a wonky story. It's a weird ending. But I think if we peel back what it's trying to communicate, hopefully there'll be some application that we can apply to our lives. Here's the first thing, if you're keeping notes. Here's the first thing that I see from the text. God makes the appointments in our lives. God makes the appointments in your life. I was thinking back. I remember back in 2008, Kristen and I were um, restless. And we felt like God was calling us into full-time ministry, but we didn't know what that was going to look like. We didn't know the path that that would take. And at the time, I was bouncing back and forth to Africa, to the country of Liberia, and um, was doing some mission trips there. Just seeing if God would move in my heart in some direction, I was looking for clarity. And in Liberia, a very, very poor country, we were traveling from the main city, Monrovia, to a secondary city. It's about a five-hour van ride from Monrovia to Buchanan, and um, I would get in the van, and, and my place in the van was I would climb over the three rows of seats, and I would sit where the spare tire was behind the third seat and just kind of travel there. And you're like, well, why didn't you sit in the seats? Well, because we would have 15 to 18 people in the vans everywhere we went, and um, I'm not much of a hugger. Some would say I have personal space issues, and I really enjoyed the tire, okay? So that's where I would sit. And uh, on this particular trip, we were uh, doing some training for pastors. We did two conferences, one in Buchanan, one in Monrovia. But the guy that was going to do all the teaching, uh, kind of the lead missions guy, I was part of his trip, he got sick. He got into some bad water. He was laid out. And uh, I was supposed to teach one session, but now I found myself having to teach every session. And um, I'm taking his notes, and I'm trying to get through this, and I'm trying to navigate translators and do all of this. And I ended up preaching for him on a Sunday morning in one of the churches there. And as we were bouncing along the road, I was sitting back near the tire on the way to Buchanan. He was in the back seat starting to feel a little better, and he turned and he looked at me and he said, dude, I don't know what you do in business, but you have no business not preaching. And I look at that and I go, you know what? That was a moment. That was a divine appointment. He didn't know much about me. Those were words that brought some clarity into a direction that God was leading. I've got to look back at that and say that that was a divine appointment. Anybody, can you think in your life when you would say, yeah, that was a moment where God showed up and it was a divine appointment for me? Do you guys have moments like that? Some feedback, please don't leave me hanging. I would hope that as a follower of Jesus, you can point to some of those moments. But here's what impressed me about Jonah. Those moments are going on throughout the book over and over again. It's not always the big moments. Here's a question. Did you have any divine appointments? Did, did God place some appointments on your calendar this week? 
Some interactions with a boss, with a coworker, with a family member, with a neighbor. Do, do we view our lives? Do we review the, the, the things and the events and the circumstances and the trials and the joys, the things in our lives? Do we view them as divine appointments from God? Because if we look through the book of Jonah, I don't want you to miss this. One of the things that impresses me throughout the four chapters is over and over again, God is bringing appointments into Jonah's life. So just, just for fun today, kind of help me with this. Everybody go like this, okay? I'll call you out by name if you don't, all right? Just, just get your fingers up. There's going to be some audience participation here. Let's look at the divine appointments that God places in Jonah's life. And here's what we're going to do. If it's an appointment from Jonah's perspective that was a positive, we're going to go like this. If it's a negative, we're going to go like this, all right? So here's the first thing that God says to Jonah. The first divine appointment in chapter 1, he says, go to Nineveh and preach repentance to those people. Jonah, good thing, bad thing. Bad thing, turn your thumb upside down, yeah. So good thing from God's perspective, bad thing from Jonah's perspective. He didn't want to go, okay? Next thing, says that he hurled a storm at Jonah. Good thing, bad thing, bad thing. Next thing, he appointed a fish to eat Jonah. Good thing, bad thing. Okay, you're tracking with me now. You're figuring it out, okay? Second chapter, he's in the belly of the fish. He's praying. There's not a lot of divine appointments in chapter two, except for the last verse where it says that God spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry ground. Good thing, bad thing. Bad thing, okay? Listen, <laughs> I don't know what you know about vomiting fish, but, but I can't believe that you guys are like, oh, that's a good thing. Like, like, I cannot believe that that was a moment where Jonah's like, this is awesome. So, so why would you put your thumbs up? Well, because he's out of the fish. Okay, granted, but I don't think the vomiting part is the positive. But you guys are wearing rose-colored glasses today. I love it, okay? So, so we'll, go, we'll go jury out on that one. Okay, thumbs back up, chapter 3. God appoints him to go back to Nineveh and preach. Second time I've asked that question, you guys should be all over that, right? Okay, now again, from Jonah's perspective, at the end of chapter 3, they repent. Jonah's out on that. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But then think about chapter 4 for a minute. Chapter 4, verse 6, it says that God appointed a plant to give him shade. Good thing, right? Appointed a worm to eat the plant. Bad thing. Pointed the sun and an east wind to fry him up on the hill. Good thing, bad thing. Bad thing. Okay, good and bad. By the way, mostly bad. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But appointment after appointment after appointment, I think our lives are way less random than we think they are. God's making appointments. He's doing the things in our lives that need to be done to get our attention, to draw our hearts back to him. And before you're like, David, I think you're stretching this a little bit. I think you're drawing conclusions that aren't there. Let me take you to some other passages that say this more clearly. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 1 doesn't understand the injustice that surrounds him. And God in his mercy tells Habakkuk in verse 5 of chapter 1, I'm doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if you were told. Hey, and everything that you're seeing and everything that you don't understand, please understand that I'm doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if you were told. Romans 8, 28 says that we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God is orchestrating the events in our lives for our good and his glory. Romans 8, 28. Philippians 1, 6 says, I'm sure of this. I have confidence in this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You never have to worry that God is going to abandon you. It's going to be appointment after appointment after appointment to accomplish his purposes, to bring you to a point of completion. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to look at certain events in our lives, like the one that I referenced, and be like, well, that was a divine appointment. I see how God used that. But quite often, more often than not, like in the story of Jonah, the things that God often uses are trials or difficulties. James 1 verse 2 says, count it all joy, my brothers. Okay, okay, how am I supposed to do this? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. Promised in Philippians 1.6 that he will complete it, that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's the point. We need to see our lives as a series of appointments that God is orchestrating for our good, even the trials. How in the world do you appoint, a, 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 how do you look at a test? How do you look at a trial? And then have James write to you, consider it all joy. That's not our natural response. And the reason that it's not our natural response is too often we're, need, we're not on the same page as God is, as relates to what he's doing in our lives. Quite honestly, the problem isn't that we're not on the same page. We're not even in the same book. We think the narrative, we think the story is about us. It's about our lives. It's about what we're doing, what we're accomplishing. And the truth is that this book that we're playing a part in is a book about the glory and the greatness of our God. I don't know what your week looked like. Mine was full. I had some interesting appointments. Some were unexpected. Some weren't fun. Some conversations were difficult. But I have a perspective that the things that fill my appointments, my days, they're orchestrated by God. I don't think my life is as random as most people think that theirs is. And I would challenge you, as you look at the events and the circumstances and the days of your lives, are you looking at them through the lens that God is setting these things for your good and for his glory? And if you did that, how would it change your outlook? How would it change your perspective? Would you be so quickly or so quick to despair? Would you be so quick to become frustrated, to become angry? And as we look back now through chapter four, I'm just going to do it this way. What happens when we're on the wrong page? We see it just play out in Jonah's life. And again, the issue isn't what's happening to Jonah. I think in the pattern that you're going to see in Jonah's life, we often see our lives take the same pattern when we don't recognize that God is in control, that he understands our calendar, that he makes the appointments. First thing we see what happens when we're on the wrong page, pretty easy, it's from verse one. We get angry, we get angry. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, isn't this exactly what I told you would happen when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for 
I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I love that verse because it is so transparent and so honest. This is God's prophet Jonah. And one of the things that I want to point out to you in this verse, his theology is really good. He's actually quoting in the things that he says from Exodus 34. He understands that he has a, a God who is gracious, that is merciful, that is quick to forgive, that if people repent, he's going to show loving kindness. He doesn't have a problem with his theology. His impression of who God is is spot on. The problem is he doesn't like God. His issue isn't a theology. He understands who God is. He just doesn't like him. Douglas Stewart, a theologian, said it this way. It's not simply that Jonah could not bring himself to appreciate Nineveh. Rather, to a shocking extent, he could not stand God. Jonah didn't want God to show the Ninevites mercy. If Jonah would have known what God was going to do in Nineveh, he would have did what he did at first. He would have ran. In essence, what he's saying at the end of chapter 3, God, if I knew that they were going to repent, I would have never came and preached the message. That's shocking. I know men who spend their lives in ministry who would give their right arm to see the type of repentance and revival in response to their messages that Jonah saw. But Jonah sees it. He goes, I was afraid this was going to happen. God, if you were going to burn the city down, I would have ran to see that. But the reality is what you did is you changed hearts. You brought repentance. You brought obedience. They turned from their evil ways because you're exactly who you say you are, and I don't like it. And there are some in this room, we tend to swing to two different sides of the pendulum. There are some here who don't understand when they view God, they view God as just a loving God. That's the only thing they see, and they can't comprehend the idea that God is also just, that he's also holy, and that he's also going to have wrath against sin. And they're saying, listen, I don't want to worship a God who's going to judge sinners. There's others in the room who say, listen, I'm all for God's justice, and I'm all for his holiness, and I'm all for his wrath. What really bothers me is that sometimes God chooses to save horrible people, people that I'm not willing to forgive. And the problem is when we focus on one facet of the character of God, be it his love or his holiness, and we begin to say, God's this way, and I don't like it that he's this way also. Here's all I'm going to tell you. We don't get to create God. He created us. And when we look at God, we've got to understand every facet of how he's revealed himself, whether we like it or not, because this story is about God. It's not our story. And God is loving, and he is merciful, and he is kind, and he is long-suffering, and he is patient, but he is also holy and he's just, and he's going to deal with sin. That's who our God is. And Jonah says, listen, it's that loving part I don't like. I was ready for the wrath. We've got to be careful that as we worship God, we worship him for who he is, not who we want him to be. And it's interesting in verse 4, in response, verse 3, Jonah's like, oh, just, just shoot me. Like, I just assume die. And we see this it's a very quick phrase in verse 4. The Lord says, do you do well to be angry? What a great question. 
Do we do well when we're angry? When our circumstances, when our trials cause us to become angry? So does, it, does that go well for us usually? I sit with people, I've sat with people this week angry. There's been moments in this week angry. Sitting at a fishing lodge in Bristol Bay, Alaska, not fishing. Angry. But I'm reading Jonah 4, and I come across this cruddy little verse, Jonah 4, 4. You do well to be angry. Jonathan Owen said it this way, you're either killing your sin or it's killing you. And my fear is when we're not on God's page, when we allow the circumstances of our lives to drive our emotions, and when it leads to anger, and in Jonah's case, it goes from anger to despair, he gets to the point where he's like, hey, life is not worth living. Like, like you ever think about how self-absorbed you've got to be to say that? How self-absorbed you've got to say, be to say, hey, listen, my life has gotten so difficult. Yeah. When we're there, when we're in these seasons, when this is where our mind's going, I would just say, I don't think we're on God's page. I believe that God's doing a work in the background that we're not seeing in the moment, and we have to be careful And the call is to get on God's page on these things. Here's the second thing I see. Jonah, when we're not on God's page, he withdraws. says this, Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and made a booth for himself. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Self-absorbed people in a downward spiral towards despair want nothing more than to be left alone. And often this is the worst mistake they can make at this point. There's a point I want to drive right now that isn't in the text. I want to tell you how important it is when you go through seasons of difficulty not to withdraw from your church community. I want to tell you how important it is for you to stay involved in small groups, for you to be known amongst this congregation. But that's not what the text is talking about here. Jonah withdraws from a a people that was wicked. They'd repented, but he's still hoping that God torches them. He's not withdrawing from his church community, from his community of faith. He's withdrawing from the culture of the city of Nineveh. And my fear would be that we live in days where we're about as isolated as any generation has ever been in any time of history. Are you aware of that? Because of the pandemic, There's a reluctance to gather. We're not gathering in groups as much. We don't go to work as often. We have Zoom meetings rather than meeting in person. Technology has allowed us to become probably the most isolated generation that's ever existed on the face of this earth. And quite honest, it can be very easy to become comfortable with that type of lifestyle. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to be engaged in our communities, in our neighborhoods, looking for the divine appointments where God might be using us to be a light for the gospel. Matthew 5 says, we are the light of the world. A city on the hill can be easily seen. This isn't what it's talking about. It's not what Jonah is doing in withdrawing. We're told to engage in our community. And, And I want you to hear my heart in something here. Often here at Harvest, we talk about the fact that we are a vertical church, that we exist to lift high the name of Jesus Christ, that our job here is to make disciples. 
We don't have a lot of community programs. There's other churches, there's community churches, there's missional churches that are very engaged in the community. They're trying to better the life of the community, and a lot of those programs are very good. I'm not dissing on those programs. We tend to be a vertical church, but please hear me. In being a vertical church, we're trying to equip you as disciples so that you can go out into your communities and into your neighborhoods and into your workplaces and be missional. Those two are not mutually exclusive Being a vertical church does not mean that we don't have a mission to our community, to our neighborhoods, to our cities. The the church that I grew up in, I grew up in suburban Chicago. I grew up in a um, big Baptist church. And um, when you walked into our church, there was this um, big bulletin board. And on the bulletin board was a, glo- was a picture of the globe, the entire world. And it had our church, and then it had all the missionaries that we had sent out all over the world. And connecting our church to each of the missionaries was a little piece of yarn, okay? Anybody grow up in a church that had one of these kind of boards? Oh, yeah, for sure. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm glad that our church was involved in missions. I'm glad that it was missional. But these were faces of people that I didn't know. Maybe they come back for a mission conference every four or five years. But if I allowed that board to make me believe that because I attend a church that's sending out missionaries, therefore I'm missional, I think that would be a mistake. I think I'd be taking the personal obligation that I have to be a light and I'd be transferring that onto the church and missing what God's called me to do. And, and, and we had to kind of battle through this, Kristen and I did, even, even in our family. Grew up in uh, the suburbs of Chicago. We moved up here in the mid-90s. And when we moved up here, we started a church. So if you would have looked at my life in the early to mid-90s, we were up here. All of my work was still in Chicago, where I was traveling to other parts of the country. None of my work was in western Michigan. So I was doing real estate development. I was trading securities. I really had no engagement with the people of western Michigan outside of my weekly involvement in the church. And God started to pick at that. And I began to coach some youth soccer, and then eventually I coached some high school soccer. And then in 2000, we opened a bread company in downtown Grand Haven. And uh, that was Great Harvest Bread Company. At about the same time, uh, we opened or we bought a soccer facility just north of the town. And all of a sudden, I had employees, and I was having to deal with the public. And all of a sudden, I had engagement in the community. And, and I'm, if I'm honest, my heart wasn't all that for the community. I was just now engaged with the community. And it's interesting, through Great Harvest Bread, I started to bake early mornings. I would actually bake bread Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and then I'd go upstairs and trade securities the rest of the day. But now I had a point of engagement, and there was a girl that came and worked with us at Baked. Her name was Julie Anderson, and I got to know her and Brian, and years later, it was my relationship with Brian. He was working at this weird place called International Aid and was telling me about everything that was going on there. And All of a sudden, I was engaged in international aid, and that led us to planting a church. And sometimes you don't even know where your engagements in your community will lead you. For me, it's the engagements in your community that bring some of the richness and the depth and the ability to be used by God, his divine appointments in other people's lives. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but my fear is, in a day and age where our culture is becoming more hostile to biblical worldview, that as followers of Jesus Christ, our tendency is going to be to disengage in our neighborhoods, at our workplace, and isolate ourselves. And Jonah withdraws from the city. That's shocking 
to me. He's a prophet of the Lord. There's just been widespread repentance. You would think this would be the time that he would dive into the culture, that he would start to disciple people, that he would have an influence for his God amongst the people. And yet he's angry. He withdraws. Listen, in our community, I do think that there are people that their story is they drove by this church, they saw a bunch of cars, they came in, and God transformed their lives. I think that's rare. I think more often than not, the story of this church and transformed lives in this place is somebody in this place was being discipled. They began to grow. There was a change in their life. Somebody in the community noticed it. And all of a sudden, in noticing, they're saying, I want the joy that person has, but I don't know where they got it. And all of a sudden, they bring them to church. How does that happen if you're not engaged? How does that happen if you're not a witness? How does that happen if you're not intentional, looking for those type of appointments, people that God is placing in your path and an opportunity to share the gospel? Jonah withdraws. He misses the joy of seeing what God would do in the community. It's interesting. A different prophet in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is going to get steamrolled by a world power by the name of Babylon. And Babylon is going to come in. They're going to level the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah has prophesied about all of this. And now the people are being led into exile. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah tells the people as they go into a foreign land to live in a foreign city amongst pagan, vicious people. He says this. By the way, it's not even Jeremiah saying it. Listen to what he says. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. This is what he tells the people to do in a hostile, in a hostile culture. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Why? Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I hope we're praying for the Tri-Cities. I hope we're praying for our teachers. I hope we're praying for our leaders. I hope we're praying for our schools. And I know much of what we see in the culture is becoming hostile towards the gospel. In response, we're not called to become hostile towards the city. We're called to pray for the city. I hope that's the heart of the people at Harvest. Here's the third thing that I see in the text, verse 6. When we're on the wrong page, we get angry, we withdraw, we become emotionally unanchored. It says in verse 6 that God appointed a plant, and it says Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Exceedingly glad because of the plant. I don't know if he was some sort of horticulturist or what. Exceedingly glad because of the plant. I haven't seen a guy this excited about a plant since they legalized marijuana. Like, this is, this is exceedingly glad. Verse 8, God appoints a worm, tax the plant, and the ta- plant withers. At the end, he says, and he asks that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Are you sensing a little bit of emotional instability in our boy Jonah? Plant grows up exceedingly glad. Plant dies the next day. I want to die. 
up and down, up and down. Because here's the problem, when we're not on God's page, when we don't see our life as a series of appointments that God has put into place and motion in our lives, we tend to get angry, we tend to withdraw, and when we're in that situation, we become what James calls a man that is tossed to and fro. He's like one, uh, one who, like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So the plant... I think it's, understand, it's important to understand what the plant represents. In Jonah's life, the plant provided shade. It was comfort. It blocked the sun. It provided relief. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we're being Jonah in this story, how often is it that we value comfort over what God's calling us to do? Or if God disrupts our comfort, we become angry and we quickly withdraw. And we don't see it as an appointment. Jonah has his comfort messed with and he becomes angry, he becomes despondent. Are there things in your life, are there areas that are uncomfortable for you that you're willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? If you can't point to those things, my fear would be that comfort has become your God rather than the God who's called you. Here's a fourth thing. We lose sight of God's love for people. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant, for which you did not labor, you didn't make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Okay, a couple things in this verse. Somebody that doesn't know their right hand from their left is directionless. They're just directionless. That's all that the text is trying to communicate. And Jonah, who's withdrawn from the city... God's like, there's a city full of directionless people who've just repented, and you don't even care? Okay, the, the, the part about the cattle, I don't think God's concerned about the cattle. What he's communicating here is that this is a city of influence. But back then, the best way I can say it is, today you've got a little bit of money, your wallet might be a little bit thicker. Back then, money was hairier, and you had to feed it a couple times a day. So he's talking about this great city, this influential city. And I find it interesting as I listen to commentaries and listen to other pastors preach on these topics. One of my favorite pastors in the world is a guy by the name of Tim Keller. And Tim Keller, in preaching about this passage, he says, listen, God loves the city more than he does the country because God loves people more than plants. In the city, there's more people than plants. In the country, there's more plants than people because God loves people more than plants. God loves the city. Now, of course, his church is in Manhattan, so it's interesting that he would take that take. But it's interesting, often church planting organizations, the Southern Baptist has this uh, uh, mission called SEND. They're attacking the big cities across our country in the Midwest. It's Cleveland, it's Indiana, it's you know, Chicago. And if you plant a church in those areas, Southern Baptists through Send Network are making funds available to help church planters if they'll plant in the big cities. Another church planting organization, Acts 29, does the same. The logic being that if you plant in the big cities, the gospel will spread quicker. And I get that. I, I can look at Paul's missionary trips and he would plant in some influential cities. But I don't think the purpose of Jonah 4 is to highlight God's great love for big cities. And why do I think that? Well, do you remember Jesus? Where did he live the majority of his life and do the majority of his ministry? In a nowhere place called Galilee, 
from a nowhere city called Nazareth. I don't think this is about cities. I think this is about God's love for people. And that's important for us to understand because I'm not preaching in Manhattan. I think I'm preaching, is this the village of Spring Lake? Is that what this is? So you all aren't city folk. You all are villagers, right? And we're next door to like Borculo. So we got to be careful we don't miss the intent. God loves people. God loved a city that was wicked, persecuting, and oppressing his chosen people. And though they were wicked, he said, I'm going to take my prophet and I'm going to go reach out to them because I love them. And in spite of their rebellion, I'm going to demonstrate my love. See, one of the things that I love about the book of Jonah is what's embedded in the book of Jonah is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about some religious effort that we make to get ourselves right so that we'll be acceptable before a holy God. The gospel is about a holy God demonstrating his love to us that while we were still sinners, he was willing to send his son to die for us to express his love and his loving kindness and his mercy to those who would accept Jesus as Lord. city of Nineveh hadn't repented. God moved first. And if we're not careful, not only will we miss and lose sight of God's love for people, we'll lose sight of God's love for us. It would be hard to miss in the study of Jonah God's ever-chasing, ever-pursuing love for his stubborn, bad-attitude prophet. Jonah, I'll go the other way. God says, no, I'll pursue you. And if that means I've got to make some appointments, if I've got to hurl a storm, if I've got to send a fish, whatever it takes, I'm going to do it because I love you, I'm going to pursue you, and I'm never going to let go, and I'm never going to give up. But it's a weird ending, isn't it, chapter 4? I wonder whatever happened to Jonah. Because at the end of the story, the last thing he says, yeah, I'm angry. <laughs> I'm angry about the plant. How do you think the story of Jonah ends? It's not written. I don't think it's important. If I had to guess, I think Jonah has a change of heart. Here's why. Who wrote the book of Jonah? It's anonymous. We don't know. How did the person write the book of Jonah learn the facts about the book of Jonah? Because only Jonah was in the belly of the fish and only Jonah was on the hill in chapter 4. I believe at some point Jonah most likely had a change of heart, saw the ridiculousness of his attitude, and he told the story to somebody else or he wrote it down so that we could learn from his transparency and his mistakes. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter how Jonah responded. If he wrote it, how this story came into being, here's what's important to know. How do we respond? Because my fear would be some of us are on a path where we're not on God's page. And we're just living our lives, going through the different things, hitting the different bumps in the road, not understanding that God's at work in any of this. And we're becoming easily frustrated. We're tempted to withdraw. We're emotionally all over the place. And there's this Old Testament book of Jonah where God's trying to get our attention, try to speak into our hearts and say, hey, listen, you've got to see things differently. You've got to see things from my perspective. I love you. I'm pursuing you. And I'm orchestrating the events in your life so that you don't run away. So I don't know where you're at this morning. 
This week, I've met with some angry people. I've met with some people that are in despair. I've met with some people that aren't even sure what God's doing all the time. Some of them are from our church. Some of them aren't from our church. Some of them are just in the mirror. We're going to close this service a little differently. Typically, I would pray. You guys would sing a song and we'd leave. I just want to do this. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And maybe just consider for a moment, was there anywhere during this series where you found yourself in this story? Maybe there's some areas that you're just running from God. You're saying, God, I'll do whatever you ask me to do, but I won't give that thing up. That thing will be my priority. That thing is the thing that I treasure more than doing what you've called me to do. Be careful. God loves you. He's going to pursue in those areas. Or maybe this morning you wandered in here and you just said, I'm angry. I'm discouraged. Emotionally, I'm all over the place. I'm starting to withdraw. Maybe... Jonah 4 is a divine appointment in your life. Maybe this is a moment where you can say, Lord, I'm going to follow you even when I don't see it. And in the quietness of this moment, I would just ask that you listen as Taylor sings over us a song, a prayer, and maybe in this moment do some business with the Lord. Be transparent. He won't disappoint. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book. I thank you for um, your prophet. I thank you that you, you, uh, you use stubborn people. I thank you that you use people that um, struggle with anger, with frustration. Father, you know us. You know our hearts. Father, thank you for loving us, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. And Father, we in this moment, we um, once again are confronted with the incredible love that you demonstrated for us on the cross. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for not letting go. Thank you for pursuing us. Father, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.